Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. My guest today really needs no introduction, and this is really an honor for me to be able to talk to him. Um, he is a local legend in Santa Barbara. He's an activist. He's a, he's a judge. Uh, he's an all-around good individual who's done so much work for this community. And we're going to talk about all your credentials throughout this podcast, but I want to just turn it over to you right now. Judge Frank Ochoa, thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I'm doing great, Josh. Uh, uh, enjoying life. Uh, just uh, addition to the family and my 101-year-old mother who's come to live with us uh, from an assisted living place. Uh, so, and I have a happen to have a birthday tomorrow. So I've got other family coming in. My brother just got here from uh, Oakland with his wife, and uh, we'll look forward to a small celebration tomorrow. Wow, 101. That's that's incredible. You're you know uh, that's good genetics there. So you know, and uh, you're celebrating a birthday. So happy birthday! Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Well, well, Judge Ochoa, you have a, you know, we would take the whole hour if I ran down your, your credentials, but a longtime Santa Barbara County Superior Court judge. I did some research. You were appointed by Governor Jerry Brown. You were the youngest judge at the time appointed to the municipal court. And I just understand you may have been the the only Latino appointed or, uh, yeah, who was serving at that time. And you've done so much with the Legal Aid Foundation, as well as uh, with, uh, you know, as a Superior Court judge, your uh, drug diversion programs, and really done so much for the community. And what I wanted to talk to you about was a lot of the stuff that you're working on. And I wanted to lead first with something that's sort of in the news right now, which is district elections. As you know, Santa Barbara recently went through this process to redraw the maps for its districts. And it's something that uh, is done after a U.S. census count every two years, or sorry, every 10 years. And in this case, this is the first time Santa Barbara's had to do it in this forum because we have district elections now. And we have district elections for a lot of reasons. A lot of people are responsible for that. But I remember you and your team pushing for this, arguing for this, explaining why Santa Barbara needed district elections. So I want to start right there with that conversation. Have you been following what's going on with the, the, the remapping? And I know you have. Talk to me a little bit about what's, what's happening and what's new and what's changed and why this is good for Santa Barbara. Well, uh, district, district elections came about after a lawsuit uh, known as Dallas versus City of Santa Barbara, and I was not the attorney on that case. Uh, that was handled by another uh, a law firm, and uh, they uh, came to a resolution of that case uh, with judgment, a, a judgment and orders that were required to uh, move from at-large elections to uh, district elections. The California Voting Rights Act is a pretty strong uh, law. Um, requiring jurisdictions, uh, special districts, any local uh, elected official body uh, that has at-large elections and that has not had uh, good uh, or adequate representation of minority groups uh, who are significant in a community um, move from 
at, uh, from at-large elections to district elections. So that happened in 2015 in the Banyamas case. I came in a, a little bit after when they were having to face the process of going through amending the county's charter so that it would uh, comport with the terms of the judgment and make that move from at-large to district elections. There were a number of issues that came up uh, along the way. Uh, one of the district members, uh, Kathy Murillo, was uh, elected as mayor, and that left a vacancy in, in her uh, position. The city wanted to uh, fill that position with uh, uh, an appointment by the other uh, city council members, and that was antithetical to yeah. the whole concept of district election. So uh, we fought that, and they finally ended up um, going with a, a special election, and Oscar Gutierrez was uh, elected uh, to District 3 uh, in that election. So I helped draft the uh, city charter amendments that went on the ballot a few years back and made major changes in the uh, the structure that complied with the uh, Banyala's judgment. We have kept track of what's going on. I work with the uh, District Elections Committee, uh, Jacqueline Inda and Lani Ebenstein and uh, some other folks. And um, we've petitioned the uh, uh, a number of local jurisdictions uh, to move from uh, at-large elections to district elections. And in every single instance, they've, they've done so. And the census is in a whole wave of jurisdictions are implementing their uh, district election uh, processes. So we have worked with the city. Uh, we, we, we did uh, into processes that uh, were being conducted by a when, when this case was settled, uh, there were district elections and a process for creating those districts. And uh, a committee of retired judges was called for in terms of the redistricting process uh, in Santa Barbara after the 2020 census. So we had uh, uh, a great deal of involvement with Ariel Kaland and uh, the city, uh, Ariel is a, just a terrific attorney and a really a good person, easy to work with. And, uh, there are a whole number of laws that relate to district elections. And then you have the overlay of the Banyalas settlement and judgment that required it's in the intent of the uh, judgment was that there be two Latino majority districts, uh, in Santa Barbara that, became the first and the third districts. Yeah. Uh, because of demographic changes, it was very difficult to do that this time. But our uh, demographer, Lenny, uh, Dr. Lenny Ebenstein, worked with the city's um, demography group and uh, really went through an intensive process that considered a lot of different input and ultimately resulted in the maps that the uh, committee of judges is recommending that the city council adopt uh, that, that original intent of having two Latino majority districts 
was not able to be achieved because of de demographic changes. But it's, there, there is one uh, Latino majority district and the other is a minority majority district. Mm -hmm. If you put together the uh, percentage of Latino uh, voting age population, along with other uh, minority group voting age population, then you have a higher than 50% uh, representation in still in district three. Yeah. So district one r remains majority Latino and district three is majority minority, um, which is as close as we can get under, under these circumstances. And uh, the district elections committee supported that. Yeah, it was really cool to watch these three judges have these conversations, to hear from the public, and come to these decisions about what these maps would look like. The public was very involved and absolutely necessary because you know these judges are not from the area, and so they're coming at it from a, a real uh, linear perspective. They're looking at everything, but they don't have the sort of sense of the town that the local people do. So dividing up some of these communities on paper might seem like it is appropriate but as a practical matter and how communities and neighborhoods move and work it wasn't so the, the the public was really good at sort of offering that feedback and then we saw many revisions finally to get to the maps that we're at with um, what's going to go before the city council uh, i want to talk to you big picture about district elections uh you know some people will say that uh, they don't work because they may not be getting the most qualified person in office. Uh, you know, if you have multiple people who live in the same district who are very qualified, only one can win, whereas in the past and in that large, uh, it really didn't matter where they would live. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how things have gone so far with district elections in Santa Barbara? Uh, do, do, you, do you think it's for the better? Well, I guess the proof is in the pudding. Uh, prior to district elections, there had been at most one Latino on the council at any point in time. And often there were none. Right. Um, just before these, this last electoral cycle, uh, out of the 10 persons on the city council, you had three Latinos. Uh, so you had District 1, District 3, and, and the mayor as uh, Latinos. That never happened before. Right. So in terms of that uh, ethnic group having a voice in uh, the public setting, uh, it's clear that district elections had uh, a monumental impact on the, uh, the representation of Latinos in city government in Santa Barbara. Right. And Santa Barbara has a, uh, you know, a Latino population of uh, 35, 38%. And to, to think about the fact that for many years there were no Latinos on the city council. Um, and uh, that large of a percentage of uh, persons in the community, let alone the, the, the history of uh, Latino involvement and, and, and the fact that this was a uh, Spanish and then a Mexican town uh, to create a process where uh, you have representation of 
those local com uh, communities was critical. And yes, those persons um, represent uh, the interests of the entirety of the city. And they do that. Uh, that, that is an obligation that they have and uh, that they take seriously. I, I don't see any side and I think it's, it's been a great benefit. Now there are still some problems that exist. Mm -hmm. um, we have the, um, the winner takes all uh, uh, voting process. Um, and that should, should probably have changed when we went through the move to district elections and uh, the move of elections from uh, odd years to even years uh, to, to put them in the same realm as the uh, federal electoral system. Are you, are you talking about the mayor system? Uh, the, the, the winner, the mayor is the highest vote getter, but you uh, maybe you could have a runoff between the top two and people who voted for somebody else might be able to change their votes in November from June. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, we have a, a system where um, it, it, it's referred to as <clears throat> first one uh, post uh, wins past the finish line. Um, so if you have five persons running for an office, uh, the highest vote getter wins. That means somebody with 21% of the vote could win. The last two mayoral elections uh, in the city of Santa Barbara, the, the person who was elected had less than 50% of the votes. Uh, there are other systems that are used widely and pre predominantly in other jurisdictions. Uh, the uh, system where you have a primary top two go to a runoff in a general election, there's a ranked choice uh, voting process where uh, people, if there are five candidates, people rank their uh, candidates in, in terms of a choice, first, second, third, fourth. And if, so, if there's not 50%, you lop off the, the bottom uh, vote getter and recalculate the numbers. Uh, I think it's a disadvantage for someone to be in a position of say mayor of Santa Barbara and not be able to say, I was elected by more than 50% of the people in my community. So uh, I think that's an issue that uh, the district election is, elections committee is concerned about. It was something that with all the other things that were happening didn't, was not dealt with in that original uh, go round and deserves the attention of the uh, city council in terms of a potential change that would benefit the electoral a process here. If you have five candidates, everybody runs, uh, you have a primary election, a top two go to a general election, the person uh, who wins is going to get 51% plus uh, of the vote. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that's a worthwhile change. That's the way things are done in, in, in most other electoral processes and uh, would be a benefit to the community. So is there a group that's going to get that going or how does that movement start? That's on the agenda for the district elections committee. And we're going to be presenting, uh, developing and presenting a petition to the city council so that we can get it on, 
on their uh, on their plate in terms of issues to take a look at. Yeah, is that coming up this year, this 2022? You think? Uh, I think so. I think we'll probably get to it uh, in the next few months. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's certainly something that I I, I think would uh, benefit the community. We should get it out there, get the discussion process going. Uh, what the community really wants in terms of improving that electoral process. Uh, I, I I think that the um, the plurality uh, in a single election process uh, is problematical and can be improved upon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one more thing on this topic before we move on. There's some other things I want to talk to you about, but. What would you say, Judge, to somebody who just says, you know, I don't like district elections. The best person should win. We should not be carving out districts to ensure that Latinos win or that a minority population wins. Why can't we just run and let the people who get the most votes win? Why do we have to have districts? What would you say to somebody who has that that perspective? And we know that there are people with that perspective. I would say that's how things were for uh, a long time. And uh, if you have a jurisdiction that is 35 or 40 percent minority and five uh, percent uh, non-minority, uh, it's a system that is built toward uh, getting representatives from uh, from from one group in and. Uh, Some people may think that's fair. Uh, The California legislature didn't agree with that. Uh, It created the California Voting Rights Act because of the uh, that large kind of system leading to underrepresentation of uh, minority viewpoints. So. One way to look at it is that it's kind of insulting for people to think that uh, someone who comes from a, a, a district has any uh, less uh, degree of ability to uh, look at issues and consider them and uh, uh, ha- have input that considers their district, but also the, the, the city at large um, in, in terms of making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, representation is critical at all uh, phases of uh, our our society. There need to be Latinos on the bench. Um, Many of the users of the justice system are Latinos. If you have all Anglos on the bench, that presents a problem, not just in terms of optics, uh, but in terms of uh, process of representation and uh, representation of interests. So um, uh, I, I think representation uh, by minority groups and women, uh, when I was appointed uh, to the bench, there had not been a Spanish surnamed judge in Santa Barbara County since the 1870s. And uh, De La Guerra was elected in 1868. Uh, there was an effort to get him off the bench uh, with the argument that he was not a citizen. Mm. 
family had been, the Delegares had been here forever. Um, but uh, there was an effort to get him uh, off, even though he was elected by the people, resulted in a California Supreme Court case in 1870 that said, no, that's, that's not right, seat the judge. Um, John, uh, Jack Ricard was a Latino, um, spoke beautiful Spanish. I really admired him uh, and his work on the bench. It, his uh, involvement and representation in the court processes, I think, was, uh, was critical. Um, but when I was appointed, I, I was the only one. Yeah. Uh, um, that's changed. There are other Latinos on the bench now, mostly in North County. Um, but that kind of uh, representation lets the population governed by the system or by a city council or by a, a special district know that they're represented. Look at what just happened in terms of uh, a Black woman being appointed and confirmed to the United States Supreme Court. That is uh, very symbolically important and uh, structurally important in, in terms of uh, there being representation uh, across the boards of uh, persons who have traditionally been excluded from, uh, from governmental office and uh, many of its processes. There need to be Latinos in uh, uh, law enforcement and in the, the uh, uh, firefighting groups and uh, uh, other minorities and women. That is uh, foundational to um, our, our societal uh, structure and benefits it. And I, I don't see a downside. No. Um, uh, I just don't. Yeah, it's it's super beneficial just in terms of understanding those communities. So obviously, if you're a judge, uh, you can understand some communities better than maybe an Anglo judge could. Um, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that applies. It also matters that if you're a young Mexican-American, Latino kid, you know, in California, you know, you and I walk outside. You know, we're everywhere, right? We're all over the place. But, you know, if you don't see yourself represented in those uh, positions of leadership, if you don't see your teachers, if you don't see your elected officials, your judges, your CEOs, whomever it is, look like you, you start to wonder, oh, how come everybody's over here and only certain people are over there? So, it is super beneficial, you know, uh, someone like Oscar Gutierrez and the others who've been elected, they're, they're role models without even, you know, trying, without even knowing, just because people see them as being there and maybe they could be there too. I want to talk to you, you know, you retired, but you're really not, you're doing so much work in the community. Uh, one of the things that you've been so focused on has been Juana Flores and this effort to get her citizenship after she had lived here for so many years raised a family in galita her son has serves in the armed services armed forces and i'll let you explain it but because of our legal system 
Uh, she she's no longer allowed to be in this country permanently, even though her son is a soldier. He defends our freedoms and our rights in this country. And he was born here and she's here now for a little while, but but not for very long, depending on what you and others can do. It's a really sad story. Can you talk about Juana Flores and this situation and what you're doing to keep her here in the U.S.? Well, Juana Flores is a, is a wonderful person. She's a, a gracious. She's involved in her community. Uh, um, she and her husband are homeowners in Goleta. Uh, they raised 10 children here. They now have 19 grandchildren. Um, and uh, she uh, came here uh, without uh, legal authorization uh, 30 plus years ago. Uh, at one point in time, she went home because her mother was uh, terminally ill and she wanted to see her one last time. Uh, she did so and then came back across. It was 1999. And she was stopped and she didn't have legal authority to enter the country. And she was administratively removed. Uh, well, that administrative removal um, by uh, a federal statute created a bar for her from applying for status unless she'd been out of the country for 10 years. Um, and given all of the circumstances, uh, when her husband went through an adjustment of status. He'd done basically the same thing, come here without authorization, uh, made a life here, uh, developed uh, uh, a family structure and uh, involved himself in the community. Um, but he didn't have this administrative removal. So he's now a citizen, he's become a citizen. She tried to become a citizen at the same time, but uh, this administrative removal in 1999, creates a statutory bar for her being able to be here. Uh, the INS or ICE now um, could uh, grant someone humanitarian parole and let them stay here, even if uh, they're not legally uh, qualified to do so. It's a, it, it, it's a general power that they have. Uh, in an exercise of discretion. Uh, the Obama administration had allowed her to stay and she would apply for humanitarian status uh, on a regular basis, go into the ICE offices and check in. Um, and then the Trump administration uh, pulled the plug on that and said, they're not doing that anymore. So they required uh, Juana Flores to self-deport and uh, go to Mexico, where she had no family, uh, no direct immediate family, um, and uh, took her away from her husband, who has health issues that she was taking care of, her 10 children, one of whom is disabled, and she was the primary caretaker of a son who, as you mentioned, is uh, an Air Force sergeant. Um, so he's off defending his country and the country is deporting his mother. Um, she's, she's never had a traffic ticket, uh, a model uh, citizen, somebody we would all be you know, proud to have in our family or in our community. Um, so 
and she was helping take care of her grandchildren so that her her children could work in their jobs and hospitals and schools and uh, be productive uh, members of society. So she uh, left in, um, I think it was April of 2019 uh, at the uh, direction and order of the federal government. And uh, then the last election happened and the Biden administration came in and we renewed the humanitarian parole application and it was granted and she came back in June. Uh, but that's a temporary fix that just allows her to stay here on an annual basis. And uh, here down the, down the road, it could be yes and it could be no. Um, so looking for a permanent uh, uh, resolution to this family circumstance. Um, so we've moved from uh, bring Wana home to keep Wana home uh, in terms of our strategy. And we're doing a couple of things. We're obviously going to uh, renew the humanitarian uh, parole application to keep her here. Um, we are, in addition, asking President Biden uh, to grant her a pardon. She was never convicted of anything, but what she did when she came uh, without papers is technically an offense against the United States. And that's what creates the bar for her applying to uh, get uh, regularization of her status. Um, so if she is pardoned by the president for that offense, uh, then she would, uh, that 10 year bar, uh, which doesn't allow her to apply for a status would be removed. So that's our primary uh, avenue. We're also looking at uh, uh, our Congressman Salud Carbajal uh, has put into the hopper HR 454, which is a bill that would uh, allow uh, immediate family members, parents of uh, active duty service members uh, to apply for status. And the military estimates that there are about 10,000 people who could potentially be uh, positive, positively impacted uh, by that law. We're also dealing with uh, Senator Alex Padilla and Senator Dianne Feinstein and asking them to uh, consider individual legislation. Mm -hmm. Congress has the power to and has uh, a number of times done individual bills for people who um, are, are deserving of uh, special consideration uh, to allow them to adjust status irrespective of what the other, the, the landscape looks like legally uh, elsewhere. So we're doing these all these different things. We've had really strong local support that's greatly appreciated from members of the Santa Barbara Board of Supervisors, uh, Joan Hartman, uh, Das Williams, um, Greg Hart, uh, uh, Catherine Murillo when she was mayor and continuing on, uh, great supporter, uh, in terms of our dealings with the federal government about trying to get this uh, issue resolved through either a pardon or uh, special legislation or general legislation. Um, people on the Santa Barbara City Council, the Goleta City Council and Mass has uh, said, this is a member of our community, yeah. a productive member. We 
want her to be able to reside in our community. So we've had a really strong local support. We're shifting into getting that support to the president's office uh, so that we can hopefully get the pardon done, uh, taken care of. And um, uh, we're also going to be asking uh, folks to write to our, our state, our um, U.S. senators uh, to see if they can help us with a legislative resolution. I do want to say one thing. The way I got involved in Juana's case was that I got a call. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, there's something happening in our community that I think is unjust and these people need help and can you help them? I'm not an immigration guy. I don't know immigration law. So I said, well, let me talk to an immigration lawyer and I uh, I made that connection and I said, I, I wanna help on this case. This is something that is, is important. Um, the person who called me and asked me to help uh, to get, find legal help for these folks was Bill Brown, our sheriff. Mm-hmm. He saw that what was happening uh, was was unjust, yeah. and uh, I, I I really uh, appreciate his uh, noticing that this was an issue that was deserving of attention and assistance, and for making that uh, connection. Yeah, and he's not somebody, as far as I know, who's been trying to take a lot of credit for making that connection. You know, I don't think he's somebody who's talked a lot about that. So it's interesting that, you know, you bring that up as sort of the impetus for you getting involved. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I've i known Bill, I've worked with him a, a lot, mostly on, obviously in law enforcement uh, uh, issues. And uh, we used to have marshals and when I was in the municipal court and we switched to sheriffs as bailiffs in all the courts. And I've worked with him on those processes. Um, I helped draft and uh, get past uh, an initiative uh, back in the 80s that uh, uh, allowed us to exceed GAN limits so we could get fun- uh, some special funding from uh, the state uh, for, for courts and and law enforcement worked with him on those kinds of issues. Um, but he's, he's got a broader view of, uh, of justice that, that I appreciate. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you had sent over uh, some videos, um, you know, for me to watch in preparation for this conversation. And I did watch the hearing that Alex Padilla chaired or some of it. And uh, there were other examples of situations of people who are in a similar situation to Juana Flores. There was the guy who was pulled away out of his home by ICE in front of his 10-year-old daughter and uh, taken back to Jamaica and has not been back yet and talked about all the trauma that his children have experienced from having to see him removed forcibly from the home just because... He had uh, was honest. He filled out on a box that he had a prior marijuana uh, possession conviction. His attorney at the time told him to uh, to uh, plead guilty. There's a lot of circumstances there. And then when he was applying for a job, he checked that and it came back to haunt him. And all of a sudden he's gone. So 
there's, I mean, I don't think the law is in place, immigration law for those kinds of cases. Like we're talking about people who've lived good lives, important, they've contributed lives here in the U.S. and then stripped away from their families. That's hard to see how anyone can justify that. I mean, this is, these are parents. This is a mom, you know, this is a dad. Yeah, it's um, we're in a, a precarious kind of situation where many people have lost sight of the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. Uh, my father's family came from Mexico. My mother's family were immigrants from uh, Denmark and Norway. Um, and on that side of the family, I have uh, an English line to the Bigelows uh, who came here in the second pilgrim wave in 1630. We are a, a, a mix of people from uh, uh, around the world. And there's been this unfortunate uh, resurgence of um, nativism in, in this country, uh, which is a policy uh, efforts at the national and state and local levels, which is really, in, in my view, just un-American. Uh, it's, it's not what America is about. Um, and efforts to try to restrict education about the history of this country uh, and the um, the nativism and, and, and racist tendencies that can occur for, in, in, in all groups um, is, is unwise and uh, it can only lead to, uh, to negative ends. Well, good luck with Juana Flores in your, your efforts, both short-term and long-term, because um, that's, um, I can't think of any sort of greater sort of, you know, cause or goal than to help reunite this, you know, mother with her children and her grandchildren, particularly when there's many people who say things on the internet about the way things should be in the world. But this is a family whose son is actually serving in the military, <laughs> representing the country. And that's something we should all respect greatly. I want to ask you about you on your background and your upbringing. There's obviously lots of bio information about you out there on your professional career, but can you take me back to Frank Ochoa as a boy growing up and what your dreams were and what your parents were like and how did you decide to be what you wanted to be? Well, my, my father was a, uh, a Spanish teacher. He was a great Spanish teacher. He was the kind of teacher that uh, students would come back decades later and say, you were the teacher who made a difference in terms of my career path and uh, what I wanted to do. He taught uh, Spanish at the high school level, at the junior college level, at the university level. He taught the Peace Corps. Um, and uh, federal government employees, uh, uh, he, he taught them Spanish. Um, uh, interesting story, he, uh, uh, he, he taught at Long Beach City College. Uh, I grew up in Long Beach, uh, California. And um, I, I remember a time when I was in high school when he uh, 
was really upset and lamenting the fact that he had that he had applied for a position at uh, Long Beach City College in the Spanish uh, department as a teacher, right on the regular staff, and he didn't get the job. They they hired a woman who he'd been teaching for decades. Um, they hired a, a a person who uh, was on the substitute teaching list for the high schools, and their rationale was that she also spoke French. Uh, and he 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 was going through the woe is me, I'm not good enough. And I, I told him, I said, Dad, look, you teach this high level of Spanish at Long Beach City College at night after you teach high school in the day. And in that class, the department head who teaches the class in the day when most of the students are there has five students enrolled. At night, when very few of the students uh, take their coursework, you have 45 students. There's a reason for that. Now, there are five professors in the Spanish department at Long Beach City College, this is back in the 60s, and they are all white males. And I told him, it's not that you're not good enough, it's that you're too good. Letting you in is a threat to them. And I think that made a difference for him in terms of uh, his not retiring. And his, he went on to become a, uh, an administrator in the ABC School District or Orange County. He uh, developed uh, the multilingual multicultural programs there that became um, uh, beacons or landmarks for people around the state and the country and that were studied by major universities in terms of ways to develop programs that are uh, linguistically and culturally sensitive to all the ethnic groups uh, that you have in, in, in your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I knew my dad was the best, um, but he didn't. Yeah, and he was treated by the system in a way that um, w- was manifestly unfair. Mm-hmm. He let it get him down for a while, but then he came back and and pushed through and did some really terrific things. I still get comments from people, some of whom were in education up here in Santa Barbara, oh. about they knew my dad. Mm-hmm. He was uh, of tremendously uh, meaningful input to them. Uh, in their career development. So, uh, you know, I always back on him when I think about uh, difficult circumstances and how uh, society can can present barriers and how you have to work through them. And when I see uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, being confirmed for the Supreme Court, I think about my father. Yeah. Uh, and other people, uh, Reynoso, who uh, was one of the greatest legal minds uh, that I ever encountered um, and who rose to the California Supreme Court, but then was voted off. Um, uh, how can you explain that? That, that it makes no sense. Um, so there is a constant battle. Uh, have a quote by Frederick Douglass 
that I keep uh, handy. Uh, and he said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. This struggle may be a moral one or maybe a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. That was uh, Frederick Douglass in 1857, obviously uh, three years before the uh, Civil War started. But those battles are still going on. I, I teach law and civil rights in the Chicano Chicano Studies Department at UCSB. And there are lots of students going through college today who don't know that there were segregated schools for Mexican-Americans up to the 40s and, and 50s. Yeah. Uh, and people have heard of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 for the uh, African-American community, but they don't know Mendes versus Westminster. They yeah. don't know that there was um, a lawsuit in the mid-1940s attacking segregated schools in Orange County, California, and that a very courageous, another one of my heroes, uh, a federal court judge, I think his name is McCormick, could be corrected on that, um, who said that Plessy versus Ferguson, that 1896 Supreme Court decision that said separate but equal is okay, um, that, that, that federal court judge said it's not okay. Uh, and the Supreme Court was wrong. Well, you had a trial court judge telling the Supreme Court, uh, no, you got that one wrong. Mm -hmm. um, his decision was followed eight years later by the U.S. Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, that's part of our legal history. Yeah. Uh, those are things that people need to be aware of so that we can make sure that we don't make uh, the mistakes in the future that we've made in the past and that we can uh, build in a constructive way uh, in a um, multi-ethnic, uh, uh, multi-religious uh, community structure. That's what America's about. Yeah, um, we... Uh are starting to learn a little bit more about our history, but we've really just kind of approached the tip of the iceberg because there's so much that we don't know. Um, you may or may not know, um, I teach journalism and I, I teach it at Santa Barbara City College and Cal State University Northridge. And I have journalism students uh, who, I, you know, I talk about a, a journalist by the name of Ruben Salazar, and I talk about him being this pioneer and this groundbreaking Mexican-American journalist. He was born in Mexico and he lived in El Paso, Texas. And then he became a, a journalist for the LA Times and then KMEX Channel 34. And he eventually died while he was covering the Chicano moratorium in the 70s. And he walked into a bar and he was being kind of targeted by the uh, LA County Sheriff's Department. It's a big mystery about how he died, but you know, he was writing stories that were advocating for the Mexican-American 
and Latino communities of Los Angeles. And he was the first journalist to do that. He was the first one to have it as a beat for the LA Times. And then he he left and, and went to the Spanish language TV station. And there's so many stories that that he wrote that were impactful. And when I explain this and I go through this whole thing for you know a, a day with my students, they're blown away because they had no idea that there was a journalist like this who existed. And particularly my Mexican-American and my Latino students are immediately empowered. They're immediately uh, energized to want to be journalists even more so because they see, whoa, that guy did all that stuff and he had an impact and they had no idea, you know, and that's journalism. We know they're, they're never going to teach journalism in K through 12, although they should because of media literacy and how important it is. But there's so many of those stories of those individuals that we don't know about that have really made an impact. And I think everything we can do to talk about all of those accomplishments. What was your father's name? I'm a junior. So he was Frank Ochoa uh, Sr. Okay. And so he was born in Mexico. Is that correct? Uh he was one of 12 children. He was the first one born here. Okay. The families uh, of Mexico. My, my grandparents moved from northern Mexico. My father was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher there and a newspaper writer. And oh. he wrote against the Porfirio Diaz government. So he was kind of an enemy of the Mexican state. They moved to Douglas, Arizona. My grandfather knew Pancho Villa. Mm. Helped, uh, he had a store in Douglas. So he uh, provide provisions for his uh, troops. Uh, but when things got, his store was burned down after he was offered a government position in the Diaz government and declined. Uh, it was, his store was mysteriously burned down. They uh, moved to Anaheim. One of my aunts was born in uh, Gila Bend, Arizona on the train on the way to California. Um, and uh, they opened a store in uh, Anaheim and that's where my, my dad grew up. And, uh, in 1927, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was very active in Anaheim. Uh, the whole city council was Ku Klux Klan members. Uh, uh, there was a cross burned on my father's lawn when he was 11 years old, uh, the KKK. Um, so he went on, he, my, my father went to Anaheim High School. He had 16 high school letters. He lettered in basketball, baseball, football, and track. Uh, his freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years. Mm. He held the Orange County record for the mile uh, run. Um, he was such a good athlete that they told him he could swim in the high school pool any night he wanted to. <laughs> And the rule was the Mexicans could only swim on Monday night, the night oh. they came to the pool. Mm. And my grandfather told my father, if your brothers and sisters can't swim in the pool, you can't. I, I, you, you just can't do that. And to the day my father died, he, he, he was a great athlete, but he could never swim a stroke. Mm. He never learned how to swim. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, those are important historical uh, events that we need to know about and understand and, and recognize that we, we have to move forward. 
in terms of equality and opportunity and uh, giving people uh, the chance to reach the, their, their fullest potential. Yeah, well said. Now, uh, from my research, I, I think you went to UCSB and then UC Davis. How, how did you get into law? Why was that important to you? You know, your father's a teacher. You probably have many options. What, why, why law? Well, I graduated from Millican High School in Long Beach in 1968. And in early April of 1968, just before my 18th birthday, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then I, you know, I had friends who were working on uh, Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. It looked like he was going to be uh, moving in and be in a strong position to uh, to win the uh, the presidency um, on an anti-war and a civil rights platform, and uh, he had close ties with Cesar Chavez and uh, the UFW, uh, and he was assassinated. That was six weeks after um, Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, so I. Uh, and the war was going on and uh, there were gold stars being put next to the people who were graduates and on the high school uh, uh, boards outside. Uh, there were gold stars for those classmates of mine or, or, or classes ahead of mine who were killed in Vietnam. So uh, there was a war that many of us thought, most of us thought was unjust. And uh, we were looking at the possibility of uh, not being able to go to college or uh, being conscripted into uh, the military to go fight uh, this war that none of us agreed with. So lots of things that we wanted to change about the world. Uh, about the, uh, the country and its uh, direction. I saw the laws of have to do that, to, uh, to try to improve things, to try to uh, influence the direction of uh, the country. And uh, I, so I went to law school. And very soon after uh, I graduated and became a lawyer, I had the chance to uh, work the Baki case, which is, was an important civil rights case uh, in, in the 70s. And uh, although I was a very young lawyer, very new, I, uh, the, the work I did with other civil rights lawyers had an influence on how that case uh, came out. And I was quoted in uh, New 1977, uh, I was 18 months in practice uh, uh, about the Baki case and uh, the direction it was going and the, the influences that it might have. And I was quoted in a paragraph with Cruz Reynoso, who was one of my, uh, my, my mentors and uh, models in uh, the legal field. So uh, there are a number of other things I did uh, had an impact. Um, 
Uh, there was a high degree of uh, tension at one point in time after a party was broken up and 100 minority kids, black and brown kids were arrested in Woodland, California. And uh, there were demonstrations and a really tense situation. I got to work with the mediators from the United States Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division and uh, conduct a, a lengthy community, uh, city, uh, government, the city manager and the police chief uh, about how to calm things down and, 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 and work together, create some new policies for uh, the police department, for uh, communication with the community. Um, so I, I was able to do some, some things early on uh, I think were very meaningful to me and to the community that I was uh, serving. And it really um, verified to me that being involved in the law can give you the opportunity to have uh, a positive impact. Obviously, there's folks out there who uh, um, don't system to, to, to create positive uh, changes, but uh, I think overall that uh, because it's, it's our legal system that binds us together um, and is the foundation for what makes us American. It's our adherence to a constitution and a system of laws, democratically created laws under that constitution. Um, that makes us American. It defines us. Uh, When you take an oath of citizenship or an oath of office, you promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, the laws uh, created thereunder. And it doesn't matter where you came from or what your background is, uh, what country you immigrated from. You immigrated, your parents or your ancestors immigrated from some country, unless they're Native American. Uh, so the legal system is the glue that binds us together as a nation and a society. So working in that system is critically important and, uh, a tremendous responsibility and also greatly satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about sort of the, the talk you had with your father when he was, feeling as though, you know, he wasn't good enough to get that job. Um, and then obviously, you know, he, he came, came, came around it and, you know, believed otherwise eventually. But as you started to become successful, as you started to graduate college and become a lawyer and find these jobs, what sort of role did he play with you in terms of empowering you to, to be, you know, it's one thing to be a judge. There's many judges, but you, you have a, a, a heart of service as well. And wondering what sort of, what did you learn from him? What kind of talks did he have with you as it relates to your success as you got older? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, my, my father was a great athlete, um, but he went on to college and he, he was a student at UCLA uh, in the 30s when there were 10 Mexican-American students there. Uh, 
there was also Jackie Robinson and Woody Strode and uh, some African-American student athletes who were breaking barriers there. Um, but he never focused on athletics. I have three brothers and one of them was a pretty good middle distance runner. Um, but he always focused on education. He said, education is the key to get you uh, the opportunities uh, that you need to advance and to do something meaningful in this society. Uh, so that, that, that's really what he did. And my mother was the same way. Uh, she was always reading to us. Um, and she had this expansive view of uh, life and its impacts and uh, the moral structures needed to, uh, to benefit other persons, which benefits you. Um, and uh, she, she was guiding light for all. So, uh, you know, you're not here without influences and opportunities uh, to learn and grow from uh, early on. And I'm, I'm grateful for both uh, parental uh, influences that I had growing up. Yeah, and there's so much important work that people can do out there in the world, but really where it starts is your home and your children and your family and trying to be the best responsible role model without trying to be a role model, just being a good person um, in your own home. And that's how you make the biggest impact and the biggest change for you, you can have some control over that. A lot of times you don't have control of what's going out there behind, you know, out there. And that can be really frustrating. I want to uh, wrap up sort of coming back to uh, your time in Santa Barbara as a superior court judge. Uh, I think a lot of people who aren't from Santa Barbara, we know, think that, oh, that must be a good gig, right? It's Santa Barbara. It's paradise. It's, you know, that's the beach. It's wealthy community. Uh, you, what kind of cases did you see and what do you sort of see as sort of your, your impact there? I know you worked a lot with drug diversion and, you know, not wanting to put people in jail for, you know, long lengths of terms or working with them, other methods, I guess you're progressive in that regard, because that's what we hear so much about now in terms of diversion from the criminal justice system. Can you talk about your time and, and why it was important for you to sort of try to keep people out of jail and prison, as, as odd as that sounds as a judge? <laughs> I think that's the key. Uh, you know, um, we have a rate of incarceration of any country in the world. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and when I was like 12 years on the bench, um, out of the 32 total, uh, I started to see the same people over and over again. And many of them with alcohol problems and my sending them to jail was very expensive for the society and was not helping those people. So I started to look into the drug court model in the late 1980s 
and helped develop first drug courts here. And it was pretty mean what you what you do in drug courts is that you use the power of the criminal justice system to keep people in treatment until the light bulb turns on and they realize that they can have a, a, a life. Um, a, a large percentage of uh, the caseloads in courts are, have at their foundation drug and alcohol problems. So you got to get to the problem at its source. And uh, jail is uh, the end of the, you know, flush the flush and down the sewer lines uh, uh, way to deal with the problem. If, if you get ahead of it, and try to get people uh, into to treatment, it's a lot less uh, expensive and uh, it's, it's more humanitarian in terms of uh, the, the way you're resolving the problem. And it has a chance of working. Jail does not cure alcoholism or drug abuse problems. Um, so I started the first drug courts here in 19... 90, 90 or 91. And at the time, there were 25 or 30 drug courts around the country. Every jurisdiction now has drug courts. And yeah, it, it, it was, uh, for many of the older judges, it was, you know, why are you doing that? That's not what we're about. And uh, well, there is a societal problem that's leading people into your courtroom uh, in, in the criminal justice arena. Um, then you have a responsibility to try to find out uh, newer innovative ways to, to try to uh, resolve those issues and get people back into a productive path. And you do that with drug courts. Uh, we also have treatment courts in, in the domestic violence uh, area. We have specialized courts uh, for veterans who've uh, seen terrible circumstances and suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, issues that lead them into the criminal courts. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't have an adequate mental health system in this country. And because of that, a lot of people end up in the criminal justice system. Um, so I, I've always been a proponent of developing um, uh, mental health resources and uh, having community, the community be proactive about uh, mental health concerns uh, so that we don't let people get on a, on a course that's going to lead them to uh, a life behind bars. Um, when I became the presiding judge of the court, I helped guide the court through uh, the move to state control and a consolidation of the municipal and superior courts into one superior uh, uh, countywide superior court. Um, there, uh, I inherited the the juvenile uh, court assignment um, and discovered that there was were no drug treatment resources for juveniles anywhere in the county. That was astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, the, the, the Bryant Youth Center developed and we developed other resources 
And I developed a juvenile drug court after having done that, the same thing in the, uh, um, in the adult uh, criminal court system. Uh, I really enjoyed the juvenile court uh, assignment because there's pretty heavy representation by the Latino community as uh, clients in the, the juvenile court system. And uh, it's when you have a chance to really touch people and impact them and, and maybe change their lives. And I, I still have uh, uh, what were then kids in, in juvenile court who I maintain contact with and uh, help talk to them through issues uh, in life. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I, 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 I'm glad that that's the case. And, you know, it's sending someone to jail is easy. Mm-hmm. Realizing that they have uh, a problem that may need application of other community resources and helping them, helping find those other community resources is more difficult. Um, so why take the easy route when it doesn't result in a good end? If you can put a little more time in and make the community linkages to, uh, to try to get someone some help and get some redirection, um, and turn them into a productive member of society. That's what I think, uh, a, a primary focus of, uh, the justice system should be. Did you ever get thank yous? Did, did people who, you know, in the time, it's a very emotionally vulnerable situation. And I imagine sometimes people are angry at you and families are angry with you and they're thinking all sorts of things. Did you ever get a thank you later years down the road from somebody who said you actually Saved, saved, saved his or her life or something like that. Did that happen? Yes. Yeah. Uh, not, not a lot, but I, you know, uh, being a judge is a very isolating position. Yeah. You have to be above it. You can't be chummy with the lawyers. Uh, you're in the ivory tower. Yeah. Um, but there were a number of times when people would say, this happened 10 or 12, 15 years ago. And that really made a difference for me. And um, I just wanted to circle back and thank you for what you did. Um, And those are are certainly gratifying expressions. Um, But but I think it's what judges should be doing. It's what we should be about. It's making... uh, to the extent that we can, a positive influence in, in people's lives. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, uh, and like I say, I still have contact with some of the people who I could have sent to prison, but instead to uh, a treatment program or uh, got them involved in a, a family mediation. So, uh, that their family learned how to process issues and mm-hmm. uh, deal with difficult circumstances and uh, get resolution and get on a positive footing. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's one of the creative aspects of judging that needs to be um, developed and, and, and focused on. You know, judging is, 
is not easy. You have a conveyor belt of cases. It can get like Lucy Arnaz and the chocolate factory. You know, where do you I remember that? Where, you, I put them in, where, where do you put them all? And um, the it, it can get uh, overwhelming at times. And uh, I admire the work that all judges do because there is that endless conveyor belt and you have to keep the justice system moving. And yet at the same time, do individual justice in each case and try to, to the extent that you can, understand what the root of the problem is and try to assist that person getting resources uh, to resolve those uh, root concerns. So it's, uh, I, when I was uh, in 2014, when I was 64 and I realized I'd been on the bench half of my life, not half my adult life or half my working life, half my life from birth mm. on the bench. Well, I, I think I've done my part <laughs> and I think that's enough and I'll retire. I didn't retire. As you said, I've, uh, I've, I've gone into arbitration and mediation and uh, a dispute resolution outside of the court system. Uh, you know, there was a, a Famous saying by a, a lawyer uh, some years ago, and he said uh, to his fellow lawyers, uh, discourage litigation, persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often a real loser in fees, expenses, and waste of time. As a peacemaker, the lawyer has a superior opportunity of being a good person. There will still be business enough. Hmm. The lawyer was Abraham Lincoln. So um, looking for creative dispute resolution processes is not something that goes back, uh, uh, certainly in, in other cultures for millennia. And, and that's what I'm going to get to do now. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Judge Frank Ochoa, for uh, this conversation and everything that you do. You do so much, uh, both as a, an activist and in retirement, so much over your career, and you're a role model for so many people, and you've helped so many people. So I appreciate you taking time to share a little bit of your story, and good luck with everything you're working on. Well, Josh, I, likewise, I, I appreciate you, given what's happened in the last few years, and with the, uh, the outbreak of uh, fake news, of, of alternate realities in terms of facts that are not grounded in reality at all, uh, and, and the way that the media has been split in that regard, I, I appreciate someone who hews the line, who knows the journalistic ethics, who uh, takes the responsibility of... Um, reporting the truth and, and yet still getting uh, in-depth to facilitate people's understanding uh, of the issues is uh, of critical importance to our society. So appreciate your work. Yeah, thank you. I've been around a long time now, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been yes, fun. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Judge Ochoa. I appreciate your time. Have a great day thank and happy you. birthday again. Thanks. Take care. Take care.